From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. This is a podcast all about surgery and the individuals who are at the cutting edge of it, and we're glad you're here. On this episode of The Surgery Set, we're speaking with Dr. Zara Cooper. Dr. Cooper is an acute care surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. She's been on the staff there since 2008 and is an assistant professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School. She completed her clinical training in palliative medicine in 2012. Dr. Cooper does research to improve end-of-life care through the National Institutes of Aging, and we had a great discussion about ethics and palliative care education for surgical residents and fellows. So, Dr. Cooper, welcome uh, to the surgery set. Thank you again so much for making the trip out from Boston. Thank you. It's great to be here. You gave an amazing talk, covered a, a huge range of things that I've always been sort of fascinated with in surgery, although I'm in pediatric surgery, so I actually don't see a lot of what you're talking about, which is sort of this the, the effects of, of what you call the gray tsunami, the fact that so many of our patients are becoming older and older and that, that that's a, something that's only going to increase as we go forward, and how we think about taking care of people in that setting. Thank you. What really struck me, I think, in, in the first part of your talk is, is that you talk about, you know, we, we have all these patients who come in, increasingly they're older patients, increasingly they have complicated medical problems. I mean, one of the reasons they're older is because the demographics are shifting, but one of the reasons they're older is because medicine is getting better at managing people with complex medical conditions who then get older with time, and, and then they need surgery. And, and the measures that we traditionally have used in surgery, things like how long do people live after surgery? Does surgery improve your lifespan? Or maybe not quite the right measures anymore when we think about that population. Yeah, I think it's really important that we recognize that as people age, you know, as people have different phases in their lives, they have different priorities. And so I think a lot of what we do in surgery is really geared, particularly in trauma and acute care surgery, is really geared towards younger patients. And so we evaluate ourselves based on the things that we think are most important to them. But as the population is getting older, uh, it's becoming increasingly important for us to recognize that uh, we are performing uh, an increasing number of palliative procedures, procedures that are truly palliative in the fact that they are really intended to improve quality of life and alleviate symptoms as opposed to prolonging life uh, and improving survival. Uh, And those types of procedures require different measures to evaluate their effectiveness. Yeah, and you talk a lot about so-called patient reported outcomes, so sort of you know, and, and this notion that's actually very new of asking patients what matters to them. And it turns out it's not, you know, three extra days of life, right? That there are fates worse than death, as right. you described. Right, right. No, and I think that's very important. And a lot of the work that's been done around patient-reported outcomes uh, has been done with respect to orthopedics and respect to breast surgery and breast reconstruction, um, where the focus is on a different segment of the population. And so a lot of it is around return to work, um, you know, body image um, and kind of uh, alleviation of pain related to surgery, um, but is not necessarily related to time spent with family, uh, time out of the hospital, uh, ability to get your affairs in order, uh, not to be confused or cognitively impaired, uh, to be able to maintain your independence, to stay out of a facility. Uh, those are the things that matter to older patients. And so a lot of the times we talk about surgery when we're focusing on rescue we're focusing on 30-day mortality but even you know more in the clinical setting where we're really talking particularly around acute care surgery which is what i do around you know short-term survival 
um, you know, patients aren't really willing, aren't always willing to make the trade-offs that we demand of them uh, in order to, to gain what we think is most important. Right. And so like we would say for us, the most important thing, right, our standard quality measures are like, you know, don't die within 30 days, don't get a wound infection. Right. And for patients, it's, you know, be home, be with our family members, be aware of our surroundings. Exactly right. Yeah. I mean, I think if you think about wound infection, I think that's a really beautiful example of, of something where I might, as a general surgeon, might think of even a large, difficult-to-manage wound. You know, oh, it'll get better, it'll heal in a few months, you'll have a vac sponge, it won't be a big deal. But for that patient, particularly patients who are near the end of their lives, where that is... Um, you know, how they're going to spend their final time, they may not want to be hooked up to a machine for, you know, that's changed every three days. They mm-hmm. may not want to have to endure, you know, the body dysmorphia of having a big wound in the middle of their belly. Um, you know, we don't look at it from the patient's perspective. We're too quick to look at it from our own perspective, which is this is something manageable that can get better, whereas the wound may get better, but you may not overall. Right. And so, you know, for our patients, I think that we need to instead of just talking about the complications, when, particularly around informed consent, when we talk about um, the risks of treatment, we really need to talk about the burdens of treatment. You know? So you know, when, when we talk about being in an ICU for a few days, um, you know, for patients who have never been in an ICU, they have no idea what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, instead, we need to describe what that experience is going to be like for the patient and their family. Um, and many times, you know, when patients do have experiences, for example, like being in an ICU, they say, no, no, I don't want that. Um, so I think giving them a better sense of what the experience will be like. But, you know, the step before that is that we have to then understand what the experience is going to be like. And we don't have great data um, really to understand how patients go through illness, and including surgery. I mean, much of the data that we have about even six-month function um, and one-year survival is, you know, single center, you know, very small studies. We don't have a great sense of overall what happens to this population of people uh, that we operate on. And you quote a, a lot of data in your talk. Some of the things that I thought were really striking, 33% of patients have surgery in the last year of life. 144,000 have surgery in their last week of their life. And yet, you know, there, there are places and studies that you show that that where actually lower intensity therapy, less intervention, actually improves mortality and, and presumably quality of life as well, because all of these interventions, you know, cause complications potentially are, are very morbid. People who come into the hospital, right. even for an ER visit, mm-hmm. and go home the same day have a cognitive or a, or a functional deficit right. to say nothing of having a laparotomy. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And so, you know, one of the things that I've spent the early-ish, I hope I'm still early, but the earliest part of my career doing is trying to convince surgeons that this is relevant to us. I mean, I think too often we're really focused on not just this concept of rescue, but we're also very focused on the anatomy. You know, what can we fix? I mean, we go into this business because we want to fix things. Um, so what is the lesion that I can fix? What can I repair? What can I bypass? What can I, you know, replace? Um, instead of looking more globally at the impact on, on the, all, the whole patient. And when you're dealing with a 44-year-old who has an inguinal hernia and that's all they have, that's one thing. But if you're dealing with an 84-year-old who has CHF and COPD and has diabetes and they have an inguinal hernia, well, the inguinal hernia is actually the least of their problems. And so how will the repair of the inguinal hernia affect all of those other things, um, we need to get better at prognostication as surgeons, and we need to have a better understanding of the implications of medical illness and frailty on our patients. Uh, too often, you know, and, and a lot of this is is really 
uh, hampered by the way that we've thought about risk stratification. Forget about our outcomes. You know, we're so focused on cardiovascular fitness as the only marker for the ability to withstand an operation. And there's been more and more really robust and excellent work around frailty um, that I think has helped elucidate the impact uh, of frailty and basically poor physical functional status uh, on the ability to have surgery. But I, I do think we just need to think more globally about, you know, what it means for a patient overall. Yeah, I mean, you you talk about how palliative care discussions in, in geriatric trauma admissions, they've, they've gone up about 10 times over the past 15 years, 2 to 5%, right? right? I mean, like, we are not having these discussions. Right. Um, and, and, and you've looked back at the, you know, institution, Boston institutions looking with really cool science, uh, you know, studying the, the language in the documentation around these visits and shown that like we're, we're not meeting benchmarks at all for the discussions around these things in the in the way that you know maybe some of the more palliative oriented specialties are right right i think one of the things that i'm really struck by there was a, there was a study that uh i was a co-author on that was just published in uh otolaryngology uh where we looked at we used the same uh methods, as I described in my talk, using natural language processing to look at goals of care conversations for patients having total laryngectomy, right? right? So you imagine this person is never going to be, a salvage laryngectomy, they're never going to be able to talk again, right? Yeah. And this is, this is it. This is the opportunity to have some conversations about the goals of care. And we found very similar results, that these conversations, as they would be described by palliative care clinicians, really aren't happening. Yeah. Um, and why does it matter as they would be described by palliative care clinicians? Because, you know, communication is a skill. These things are skills that we need to have a basic understanding of their skills. And the palliative care approach is more patient-oriented than, you know, the standard informed consent conversation. And it's been very effective at improving, you know, rates of goal concordant care, making sure that patients are actually getting the type of care that they want that is aligned with their goals, but also in better prognostic understanding, which is so important. Mm -hmm. You know, we often think that when somebody hears that they're getting a laryngectomy, that they understand that that's a big deal. But in fact, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that they've then taken it upon themselves to engage in care planning, to talk to their surrogates about what kind of treatment they would want if they get sicker under different circumstances you know, or that they've had time to put their affairs in order and do things that if people had a, a, a more, a richer understanding of the implications of the procedures that we do, uh, they might want to engage in. Yeah. I, I guess to me, it feels like there's sort of two, two sides to this. On the one, you know, we as surgeons need to learn how to have these conversations and, and we need to engage our colleagues in other specialties who do this all the time, you know, the oncologists, the palliative care specialists, I mean, and learn how they're doing it. Cause, cause some people are addressing these quality of life yeah, measures absolutely. and these benchmarks and, and these, these principles of, of trying to figure out how to have better quality over better quantity of, of life. How do we get surgeons to get a palliative care consult or, or, or have a palliative care person rounding with them, yes, right, on right, the one right. side. And, and I think the other side to me is like, and I'm fascinated by, by how patients form their expectations about what it means to, to be sick and to go to the hospital and have an operation. Yeah, how do we, how do we get patients to understand the implications of this? Because it's one thing for us to go in and say, like, we're going to perform a total laryngectomy, please sign here, right? And it's another thing entirely for a patient to understand the implications of that 
and you talk a little bit about Angelo Vlandis's work, right, where he's like talked to, to patients and he, he reads them like, this is what advanced dementia is, right? Do you want advanced care for this? And then he shows them a video of someone with advanced dementia. Right. And, and, and the, the rate of, of response completely changes because people can finally picture what that means instead of having this word picture. So how do we, how do we train doctors to do a better job and how do we help patients really understand what, what it means to be on a breathing machine, have a total laryngectomy, et cetera? So I think one way that we can train doctors is to help. It's crazy that there are intensivists who have never been to a skilled nursing facility or a long-term acute care facility. Yeah. I mean, it is crazy that you have clinicians of all stripes, but particularly surgeons who are making life and death decisions continuously who have never been to a hospice. Right. right. I mean, over 50% of the American population die with hospice care, and most surgeons have no idea what that looks like. Yeah. So when yeah. we think about ways to train surgeons, we need to put them in the patient's shoes. And I will say that, you know, during my palliative care training, it was doing the home hospice visits, spending time in the skilled nursing facility, going to long-term acute care that really helped me understand going to outpatient palliative care visits. I mean, things that as a surgeon I would never see that helped me understand much better the implications of the treatment that I deliver as a surgeon. You know, we are kind of shielded from the downstream effects of what we do. So if we talk about surgical training, I think there's a lot of focus on communication training, but it also has to be experiential. And once we can provide surgeons in training with those experiences, it'll make it easier for them to describe what their patients can expect. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, you know, I use an example. I've never been to China. I'm dying to go to China. I've never been to China. So you know, I've read a lot about China, and so I could describe it, but certainly not nearly as well as somebody who's visited. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously somebody who's lived there, it would be even more robust. But, you know, having had some personal experience in that setting, I think is very helpful. And so I think that some of this is relevant in pediatric surgery as well. You know, you have patients, I don't need to tell you, who have, you know, profoundly chronic illness, and there's a tremendous burden on the family. I mean, so a better understanding for pediatric surgery fellows, for example, of going and doing home visits to understand what the impact is uh, of that child's illness on the entire family would be very profound, I think, in helping shift the way we think about care for our patients. I think that would be amazing because I think so often you're absolutely right. Like patients begin and end at the hospital door, right? You have no idea what they're coming from when they come in the door. And, and when you send them out, you're like, well, dispo to home, dispo to sniff, right? right. What matters is they're out of the building right. and you just stop thinking about it. Right. And so often, you know, as I mentioned in my talk, I don't know what it's like here, but, you know, we talk about rehab. All of our patients, any patient who leaves the hospital, we call it rehab. Hmm. You know, in order to rehab, you have to be able to engage in three hours of physical activity, which many of these patients cannot. So they're actually going to a nursing home. Yeah. So when we're so eager to kind of use language that we think won't be emotionally harmful to our patients and their families by telling them that they're going to rehab instead of a nursing home, what we're doing is completely skewing their expectations of what's going to happen. And we're also missing an opportunity to explain, you know, your dad can't do three hours of physical activity. He's so ill that he can't do that. Right, that he right. doesn't qualify for that because he's so ill. That's where we are, as opposed to setting up this, you know, unrealistic expectation that dad's going to work out a few hours a day and he'll be home in a week. Right, because that's that three hours of physical activity is not like doing a three-hour marathon. That's like standing up. Right. 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 Yeah. So it's a big deal if you can't qualify yeah. for rehab. Yeah. Um, and so helping helping um, patients and their family kind of understand those differences using very descriptive language. And one thing that I find helpful in 
bridging that gap is asking, you know, particularly for when my patients can't answer for themselves, asking their caregivers, you know, so what has it been like the past few weeks to months? You know, what are the things that he can no longer do? Yeah. And, and what they often describe is, you know, this experience of kind of like steady decline, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's fast or slow, this steady decline and of kind of ongoing losses, right, that reframes the situation so that when I can summarize it for them, I can say, well, I hear that things actually haven't been going that well and that already he's losing his ability to do a lot of things, Yeah. right? Now, that does a couple of things as far as communication strategies go. One, it helps kind of put everybody on the same page, and it's, a, it's an educational strategy. But it's also an emotional strategy. I mean, it helps them understand that I'm listening to them, that I understand their experience, that I'm with them. And it's a signal to them that I'm worried that things already haven't been going well. And too often when we engage in these conversations, we kind of bypass all that as if we're starting at ground zero. Mm-hmm. And that this is, you know, an acute thing that's happened that, you know, isn't affected by the past or the present or the future. It's like just right now, this moment in time. Right. When in fact, you know, almost all of surgery is the culmination of a series of insults over time. I mean, the entire field of vascular surgery, I've just described it. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so I, yeah. I just think we have to we have to help our patients kind of understand, you know, where where they are. And sometimes, you know, again, maybe not a great analogy, but I have a second grader who likes to think that she's a sixth grader, and I often have to reel her back and say, you're not actually a sixth grader, you're still a second grader. Yeah, yeah, right, and right, that, that so often patients think come in and they say, well, finally my problem, my multiple problems have culminated into this surgical issue. So now this white knight surgeon will come in and be able to fix everything, and I'm going to go back not to where I was the week before I came in, but where I was 20 years ago. Yeah. Right? Exactly. I'm going to get a exactly. motorcycle. That's ex- no, that's exactly yeah. right. And I think one of the challenges when we're speaking with patients' family members, right, is that they too are stuck in the past. I mean, you know, when I think about my parents, I don't necessarily, I mean, I know who they are now, but when people ask me to reflect on my mom, tell me about your mom, I don't describe her as a 76-year-old woman. I describe her as the woman who raised me. You know, who right. was able to do many other things than the person who's able, you know, who's here now. Yeah. Who is here now and in, thankfully in very good health. But nonetheless, like, still, it's a different scenario. What a, what a wonderful wake-up call to all of us. Just remember, just we have to be realistic about, about what we can and cannot do. And patients need to understand what, what is and isn't feasible. And, and, and what a wonderful thing you're doing to, to advance that discussion. Thank you. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was recorded by Chris Hansen and edited by Elizabeth DiNovella. Our theme song is On Wisconsin, arranged and produced by Jamie Schmidt. I encourage you to visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. In addition, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. And of course, you can follow us on social media. You can like our Facebook page and also find us on Twitter at WiscSurgery, and I'm at J-E Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing, rate and review us on your podcast app, and don't hesitate to let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover. Thanks, and we hope you check back soon. 
Always got to say.